following presentation is a Bernanke and Krauss production. The city of Albuquerque, in the heart of New Mexico and the land of enchantment, lies a community home to a cinematic universe that's full of drama and suspense. In recent years, the once peaceful community has seen a surge in illegal activity, thanks to the work of a shady lawyer in the making. A chemistry teacher with a newfound identity. And the heart of a cartel seeping through the underbelly of the city. It is in this community where we have come to watch the character study of Better Call Saul unfold. With the gift to Gab and a smile you can't forget, the evolution of James McGill, the beloved persona of Saul Goodman, attorney at law, has captured the interest of millions of fans across the world, making us hold our breath in suspense over the course of this perilous path. This is the story of not just one, but several characters, each on their own morally compelling journey. This character study is just one of the reasons we enjoy the cinematic world Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould have created, and we hope you do too. I'm Joseph Bernanke. And I'm Alex Krauss. And this is The Truth Is How You Look At It, a Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad podcast. Good afternoon, Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad fans, and welcome to The Truth Is How You Look At It. This is episode five of our weekly podcast series recorded from Winnipeg, Manitoba on a beautiful February afternoon. Today we're looking at Alpine Shepherd Boy. It's a favorite of mine in the first season. It uh, debuted March 2nd, 2015, written by Bradley Paul and was directed by Nicole Cassell. And of course, as always, I'm joined by a good friend and our co-host of the series. Alex Krauss, always a pleasure to be here. And yeah, we're excited to bring you another great episode of the show that we love very much. This is a good one, for sure. And we appreciate you guys tuning in from different parts of the world, as we've found. We've had some viewers listening in from Canada, parts of the U.S., and even the U.K. So we appreciate your support, and thank you for your time, guys. We'll get right into today's episode. The, um, the first scene opens with, uh, we get a cool opening shot of a salamander scurrying across the ground. Close to where we see Chuck has left the $5 bill under a rock in exchange for his neighbor's newspaper. We see the neighbor, an old woman, still peering out her window towards Chuck's house now as a police car arrives at her house. Two officers step out and we assume they talk to the old woman about the missing paper. Chuck, meanwhile, is resting under his space blanket when he receives several knocks at the door from the two Albuquerque police officers. There's a nice shot of Chuck stepping over the newspaper with Jimmy's heroic headline marked on the front page from his billboard escapade in the previous episode, Hero. The two officers just want to talk to Chuck about the newspaper discretion, but Chuck, based on his egregious condition, can't let them in the house. An argument ensues about the newspaper, with Chuck insisting that $5 was enough for the paper. With this going nowhere, the officer motions to the other to go around back, and Chuck brings up the notion of them not having probable cause to enter his house. The, uh, the officer around back can't see into Chuck's dark home, so he uses the flashlight to peer inside. He motions for his partner to check out two fuse boxes with wires that have been completely destroyed and removed as the camera slowly peers to the left in the shot to show us what's going on. 
I love how Chuck is continuing to ramble on about probable cause, yet he doesn't know where the officers have gone. It's like a cartoon. Ramble is right. Like, he's just ranting on about the specifics and probable cause, as he said. As, of course, he would, being with his expertise in law. We see a ton of fuel on the ground that Chuck uses for his house for lighting. As the cops decide, you know what, we've had enough of this guy's refusal for entry. They break down the door after Chuck uh, tells them they need to ground themselves. Chuck even says, I'll give the paper back. And the scene quickly fades to white, almost like with the electricity and just scaring Chuck with his fear of electromagnetism. And it can be assumed the officers used tasers on Chuck to restrain him. Um, an interesting note, the intro Better Call Saul jingle today features a classic Saul Goodman bench advertisement that we see on Breaking Bad. So Alex, did you think Chuck stealing the newspaper from the last episode would have repercussions on him? <laughs> Not to this extent, for sure. I mean, how likely was the scenario? Not very, but it's always entertaining to watch. I mean, of course there'd be someone watching as he runs outside the house with a space blanket flapping behind him as he steals neighbor's newspapers. Uh, it's always an entertaining sight to see, for sure, but I'm sure they'd be just as surprised. Per, per Chuck's wisdom and expertise on the law, and with your background in law, did these officers have a probable cause to kick Chuck's door down? It ties into the fact that he looked out back. Like, beforehand, no, but as soon as he looked into the back of his house, technically, he shouldn't be doing that, but he did. He looked inside his house and activated his flashlight and saw the gas as well as the torn wires. He may have thought that he could have been a threat to others or himself. So there is uh, some discretion for a probable cause, but it depends on like whose point of view, right? That's a good point, and we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about that later in the episode, especially Chuck being endangerment to other people. Um, like I guess, like put yourself in the mind of an everyday police officer. Would you have approached that situation any differently? When hearing about a man wrapped in a space blanket stealing other people's uh, papers, surely you must think of the idea of they're not quite all there. They may be slightly unhinged. And when you see the wires and the gas at the back connecting the dots, you should have uh, concern, right, for the neighborhood. So I think even though they were misled, it's still within reason, reason right? I think, as, I think as we get more into the episode, we're going to be playing with the idea of not many people know outside of Chuck, Jimmy, Kim, and a few people at HH&M, not many people know about his condition. So trying to explain that to if, if uh, Alex and I were walking down the street and we saw this, it would be pretty strange to just, you know, give a summation on the spot as to what's going on. This is pretty crazy, you know. For sure, well said, and that's why they jumped to that conclusion, right? So they don't know the Chuck situation. That's why they uh, put the two and two together of the gas and the wires and think, okay, this is a concern, so. Hey, could you open the door, please? Look, we know you're in there. You're casting a shadow through your peephole. All we want to do is talk. Would you please open the door? I'd, uh, I'd prefer not to, officers. Sir, come on and open up. I have a condition. Uh, I can't go outside or be exposed to what's out there. You were able to come outside to steal your neighbor's newspaper. 
I've left $5. It, the cover price is 50 cents. Officer, let's, let's, let's talk about something called probable cause. As I'm sure you know, in the state of New Mexico, there is a two-part test to determine whether police officers have an objectively reasonable basis. Neil? Look, look, I'll give the paper back. In what might be one of my favorite scenes of the entire series, as we go into the second part, um, this part of the episode is basically broken down into Jimmy's hilarious interaction with three potential clients who contacted him after watching him rescue the billboard worker from Hero. The scene begins with Jimmy driving out to a large compound out in the middle of the desert with buffalo iron gates and a large home in the background. Richard Sipes, call me Ricky, is the first meeting for Jimmy. There's something hilarious. I just picked up on this the second or third time watching through. Um, the irony or whatever you want to call it. I guess the symbolism between seeing Jimmy's piece of crap car next to the two Hummers. Oh, yeah. In the driveway that look like tanks. <laughs> that is my assistant's car, Jimmy thinks that he'll say. Um, so he sits down in a large lounge chair uh, with, with uh, Richard in his house. And we see many African animals lay stuffed around the room. Of course, this being taxidermy. There's a zebra. There's a lion. There's a, there's a rhino. Uh, Ricky is clearly a libertarian at heart. This guy wants as much individual freedom as he can exert in his own life here. So to cut to the chase, he wants to secede from the American Union, get away from the United States. He's got his 1,100 acres and sustainable energy sources. He feels he can declare himself free from the shackles of government oppression. The look on Jimmy's face during this whole meeting is hilarious. As he first salivates at the idea of a case that could take many hours, even going to the Supreme Court, which would mean a lot of money for Jimmy, ideally, going his way. But this quickly changes when Jimmy hears about his form of payment. So after a few yeehaws, Ricky brings out a $500,000 retainer, as promised, in his own Sandia Republic bills, complete with Ricky's face on the bill. Uh, that look on Jimmy's face change is ridiculous, and as expected, he quickly drives away from the compound. <laughs> uh, I, I love the bits of uh, the scenery thrown here and there, just like you said, the two giant hummers next uh, next to Jimmy's vehicle, all the taxidermy of the uh, different species just sort of staring on. And I'm not sure if you noticed, in the background there's a painting that sort of signifies the ego of this person, of him just... Uh, center in the uh, middle of all the animals so just of course this is the kind of person that wants to <laughs> separate from the states right the actor that played richard's character too did a really great job even albeit just a very small minor role for so. sure i do love uh, jimmy's ability to sort of match his clients as well sort of he wasn't knowing what uh, it's a tragedy yeah. right yeah, yeah he sort of adjusts to how um, uh, his client would expect him to be. Uh, he had the idea of the assistant being the one uh, who owns the car. And then when he hears uh, the client say, oh, it's a damn tragedy, someone like you has to be driving like that. He sort of like em embraces it. And, he totally does. Yeah, and then changes his own narrative as he goes and, along. And that's one of the best things that 
Jimmy McGill does throughout this series. It's adjusting on the fly to different things. It's part of that charisma that he has that a lot of everyday people simply don't have. So when, you know, Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan created this character, they 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 thought, okay, this is going to be Jimmy's core strength. It's the gift to gab. It's talking himself in and both out of situations. So Well said. Like, I mean, who could keep a straight face when hearing the stuff that this man has to offer? And when given the money, like, up until that point, he was more than willing to... Uh, go the extra mile for this guy the um the next client for jimmy takes him into the world of patent law as he arrives at roland j cox's house already this guy's got a bit of a strange name but you know as we go here so roland asks jimmy to sign a non-disclosure agreement uh, as a tarp covers a large item on the floor in his garage the first time i saw this i had no idea where this was going so this got really hilarious fast here Roland reveals a toilet with a motion sensor voice chip that encourages children to go to the bathroom. I won't go into the suggestive phrases the toilet comes programmed with at the moment, but let's just say it's hilariously disturbing. (laughs) Jimmy looks in amazement and confusion by this action and questions Roland's logic as to why anyone would support this invention. Jimmy, suggesting it's a sexually suggestive toilet, makes Roland quickly get upset at him and he kicks him out of the house. And we've got some great lines from Jimmy here. Some of those Pacific Rim nations may love this, those crazy <laughs> bastards. Well, Viagra was originally created to treat hypertension. And then after, you're the one with the sex toilet. I hope you make a fortune because Chandler is going to need it to pay for his therapy. <laughs> it's it's brutally just right in your face, this oh, whole scene. It's absolutely golden, in it, my it, opinion. It's some of the best comedy, I think, in all of Better Call Saul through five seasons that we've gotten so far. So This is for children. Just, yeah. the, the actors that they got to play these minor parts in this episode are definitely on point. So... And finally, the third client for Jimmy is an older woman, a grandma perhaps. And we get a great opening shot of Jimmy waiting impatiently with his clipboard, basically, as the woman very, very slowly descends down the staircase in one of those stair lifts for senior citizens, like you'll see on those old 2000s infomercials, like, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. (laughs) But inexorbitantly slow, like dialed down a thousand times. On the table, you can see a whole handful of small, detailed figurines and tea and cookies as she tells Jimmy, I found the Alpine Shepherd Boy, a nod to the title of today's episode. Jimmy, uh, now dealing with elder law here, is helping the older woman sort out the details of her will as to who in her family gets which figurines, which I found rather funny again. She walks very slowly to the table and hands Jimmy the figurine, and Jimmy says, oh, in appreciation. He kind of doesn't really know what to say here. He's just going along with it. There's a great line exchange here. Uh, Would you like some more tea? With Jimmy quickly saying, no, no, I'm fine. As you can tell, Jimmy wants to get out of this house. He's been here a long time. He doesn't want to delay any further. And Jimmy kind of has to sort of coach the woman here through her memory as to who gets what figurine to speed things up. And there's a few more awesome lines that we have to mention here. The old woman says, uh, and I thought all lawyers were crooks. Half of us are lawyers. Uh, half of us are lawyers. The other half are crooks. Who doesn't appreciate a good lawyer joke? Uh, 
And uh, aren't you a spicy one? If I was 40 years younger, I'd ask you to buy me a pina colada. <laughs> the, uh, the old woman is able to pay Jimmy $140 in legal fees, which honestly I think kind of surprises Jimmy that she's able to pay him up front just from her purse. You can see how fast he grabs the money. He was surprised himself. And he sort of like takes a moment to uh, calm down after grabbing it. He just wasn't expecting it for sure. We learn her name is Mrs. Strauss. Uh, this is the first time we see her character. And it won't be the last. I believe that she appears later on. We won't talk about in what capacity, but uh, it's important to note. Uh, and finally, at the nail salon, Jimmy hilariously entertains Kim with stories of how his day went, including a breakdown of his meeting with Roland and the, the sex toilet. Is that a piece of corn there, Chandler? Wow, you're doing really well. <laughs> I won't uh, get back into that voice again, but it, let me just say, folks, this is I was just laughing my ass off on the couch the first time, and then re-watching this again the other day this week. Oh, my gosh. It's you know, Bob Odenkirk is amazing in this scene, and his impression of the toilet's voice is on point. <laughs> he was saying what we're all thinking, to be honest. Kim gets a call from Howard and tells Jimmy after all the laughs, something has happened to Chuck, which concludes the scene. So Alex, out of all of Jimmy's adventure today, do you have a standout moment from those three people that he met? Uh, I think each of them brings a hilarious and unique character enough themselves and gives us little snippets of like the calls that he received in the previous episode and seeing some of the customers that new clientele that he has to deal with and i just love like his little interactions such as uh correcting the lady on who gets what when it comes to extremely specific scenarios that they get these uh minifigures like only in the case that frederick does not remarry does he get this doesn't drops out of college yeah yeah and, uh situations like that so i just find that hilarious um and of course the reaction of Jimmy in the very first one, driving away <laughs> upon seeing his form of payment in uh, a new currency. Oh, we don't even get a chance to hear uh, Ricky anymore. That's just, he's no, gone. He's yeah. out of there. Um, even your lousy days are more interesting than my good ones. What do you make of this line from Kim? I actually think it's, I don't know if it's an important line, but I think in terms of character development, I think we see an appreciation. I think Kim likes... That Jim, Jimmy's life is, it's different every day. It's, it's a, I don't want to say it's a mystery, but it's it's a lot more fun, I guess, than some of the stuffiness of HH&M. What do you make of that? Oh, for sure. Like one of the first scenes that we see Kim is smoking in the uh, bottom of the elevator at the parking lot. Just sort of dealing with the daily life of HHM. Like, I mean, it isn't glamorous too much and it's like very how do I put it it's very mundane right it's mm -hmm. not that exciting as you said and she's not having that impact with the clients right when she talks about elder law and her own experience with her own grandma that Jimmy could be that person that could have helped her uh, like it becomes personal because she knows that she's act he's actually making an impact with these people whereas she barely gets to see the clients the clients that she does see are very impersonal. It's dealing with businesses. We may see that further along in the series, but it's you sort of get the sense of 
unsatisfaction with her current job. That's a really good point. That, that reference to Jimmy sticking to Elder Law is interesting. Do you find it's a little bit of foreshadowing? Oh, for sure. Um, with Jimmy McGill uh, and Elder Law, we'll continue to see that in future, as you said. Did you have any other thoughts from this second scene that you wanted to discuss? Uh, just uh, not too much. Like The characters were all super interesting. Uh, your thoughts on any of them as individuals? Were you expecting the old lady to pay? I wasn't right up front, no, and and you can see, as Alex had said, you can see Jimmy's reaction. He's really excited about this, and of course, oh, all that waiting that I had to do? Okay, now I'll take the time to finish this woman's will correctly, and hey, this figurine is going to such and such. No matter the ridiculousness of what people set aside in their affairs, you know, um, you know, that's America. It's it's over 300 million people. Of course you're going to meet all these kinds of characters. It, it maybe is a little bit of a stretch. Somebody wanting to secede from the United States. Mm. But, you know, people like their freedom. You know, it's... Right. Yeah. And I find it interesting the last person that he expected to pay was the one that ended up paying in full. That's true. Yeah. Uh, James McGill to see Mr. Richard Sipes. Ricky, call me Ricky. Come on in. Uh, this is my assistant's car. <laughs> my Mercedes is in the shop. You believe in the real America. Freedom. Self-sufficiency. I do. I, I really do. When I see a man like you driving that foreign ship box of a car, oh, see, actually, it's a sign a good man can't get ahead today. It's a damn travesty. That's what it is. You know, we are once again at a point in our history where the fly-swatting hand of government is crushing the spirit of entrepreneurship. It's damned oppressive. It's tragic. It's un-American. Ricky, I'm all ears. I want to secede from the United States. I got 1,100 acres of property here, self-sustaining with solar power and wells, a sovereign state immune to the business-killing regulations of the country in which it geographically lies. We are going to be America's Vatican City. Ricky? I'm your man. Yeah! 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 Yes! We are doing this! I want you on retainer. How about one million even? Five hundred up front, and five hundred when we're done. A million? <laughs> that seems... fair. Would you like that in cash? Tax-free and backed by the full faith and credit of the sovereign Sandia Republic. It's... Son, you are getting in on the ground floor. <laughs> Mr. McGill, hi. Thanks so much for coming. Roland Jaycox. Roland. Hey, Roland. 
So what do we got? I feel silly asking this, but before I show you my invention, would you mind signing a non-disclosure agreement? You got it. It's my idea of a lifetime. If Fisher-Price or PlaySchool ever got their hands on this. No worries. Meet Tony the Toilet Buddy. And when you sit down to do your business, this is how he works. Oh, yeah. That's the way. Gosh, you're big. You're so big. My goodness. Look at you. Look, I'm not, I'm not saying this thing won't make you rich. I mean, some of your wealthier Pacific Rim nations, they'll love this, the crazy bastards. <laughs> you're completely disgusting, you know that? Hey, buddy, you're the one with the sex toilet. Get off my property! Hey, you know what? I hope you do make a fortune, because Chandler's going to need it to help pay for his therapy. I found the Alpine Shepherd Boy. Oh, would you like some more tea? No, no, thank you. I'm, I'm fine. Very sharp, Mr. McGillan. And here I thought all lawyers were idiots. Huh, no, only half of us are idiots. The other half were crooks. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you a spicy one? No. If I were 40 years younger, I'd have you buy me a pina colada. Well, if you want me to drop a DNR, I'll bring a blender and some pineapple. <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> shall we continue, Mr. McGill? Yes. Yes, we shall, Mrs. Strauss. So, how's it going again? Oh, you're huge, Chandler. You're a big, big boy. Oh, where does it end? Oh, don't stop, Chandler. Don't stop. Oh, here it comes. Oh, what is that? Is that a piece of corn? No, no. Did you eat corn, uh, Chandler? Is that a niblet I see, Chandler? No, too much? <laughs> hey, good times. Uh, even your lousy days are more interesting than my good ones. Yeah, well, we should definitely do something about that. So we go along to our third scene now. The scene starts with a shot of Chuck's strained eye in the hospital. From his perspective, we see the room as glaring and distorted. The hospital lights being blinding uh, and the electrical humming is a full on blaring. While Chuck is faced with this sensory overload, his brother pleadingly tries to communicate with him while Kim watches on in horror. Jimmy desperately attempts to disable any and all electricity in the active hospital room, while the staff try to stop him and call security. Kim tries to reason with both the staff and Jimmy as he goes for the overhead lights. As the doctor and security arrive on scene, and after a brief struggle with the overhead light, the situation is de-escalated as the last of the electricity is shut off in the room. The doctor tries to understand Chuck's condition, explained by Jimmy as an allergy to electricity, and in turn explains the situation to Jimmy and Kim about how Chuck arrived in the hospital. He was found in an agitated state and his only form of contact information was a HHM card. Immediately, the doctor recommends 30-day psychiatric observation. 
with Chuck coming back to coherency in time to refute that proposition. He explains what happened on his end to Jimmy, including the fact that the police tasered him. At this point, you can really feel how scared Chuck is and how just sort of crushed Jimmy is. Like For Jimmy, he knows how devastating electricity can be for Chuck, and knowing that he got tasered, he just absolutely looks heartbroken here. And he, still, he still cares about his brother, too. Oh, for sure, right? And he wouldn't go through all the effort to remove everything from the room if he genuinely didn't care for him. And this is also the moment where Chuck proceeds to give his own diagnosis of the condition, explaining it's a electro electromagnetic hypersensitivity. For some unknown reasons, he suffers a variety of symptoms whenever he gets within close proximity of electromagnetic fields given off by electrical devices. He first experienced this condition about two years ago. Throughout the conversation, Chuck defends his position that's condition and not a situation. He reaffirms that this is a physical condition and not a mental one, in strict opposition to the doctor's diagnosis. He does not even want to consider the possibility of psychiatric help, fully believing that even if there was a chance for a cure, he would take it, but there is just clearly not. The doctor disagrees, but inquires into how Chuck lives his day-to-day -day life uh, while suffering from these conditions. While Chuck rants on, she slyly turns on the electricity underneath the bed without him noticing whatsoever, scoring a mean look from Jimmy. Taking Jimmy aside, but not before Chuck has to make a snarky comment, make sure you still have your wallet when you come back. Uh, the doctor insisted Jimmy that this allergy to electricity isn't real, and importantly, it's a manifestation of something deeper. She wants to take him to get specialized care, but Jimmy remarks he has seen specialists in the past to no avail. The doctor says that, she's just, that he's just giving up on him, and continuing to care for Chuck is enabling him rather than actually helping him. She wants Jimmy to testify against his own brother as a witness in order to get the help he needs, for he is a danger to himself. With gas cooking and lighting supplies indoors, he risks burning down his own house and, or the whole neighborhood. When uh, faced with this crossroad of getting his brother the psychiatric help or being released back into his care, he pausingly decides to choose the latter. The doctor dis uh, rather disappointingly agrees, but ends up walking away. Now, here comes in uh, Howard Hamlin, concerned about Chuck and insisting that Chuck is of sound mind and is merely suffering from a physical condition here. Jimmy, whether mistakenly or not, believes that this is merely his position or to stop Jimmy from getting uh, the stake of HHM as the legal guardian of Chuck. The two hash it out a little bit and Jimmy takes his leave, but not before making Howard believe he would commit his brother almost have just sheer spite for him. It was a long uh, scene with detail-wise, but thus it ends. Yeah, I think that's really well said, Alex. And, and Chuck, or uh, Jimmy says to Kim, like, not really don't worry, but like, I'm taking Chuck home. You know, he's not yeah. going to commit him right now. Um, I, I think this is one of the pivotal scenes in the whole first season. Jimmy's out of fork in the road here based on his two options albeit though you know as we just said he's made up his mind what do you think is best for chuck at this point in the series objectively it would definitely be getting him the psychiatric help that he requires 
uh, from my perspective, when seeing the doctor turn on the electricity underneath the bed, that clearly shows, or at least heavily implies, that it is a mental condition and not a physical one. So in my eyes, I would take him to the psychiatric help he requires. But on Jimmy's perspective, like, I mean, he just heard his brother was tased. His brother pleadingly asked him to go home. He wants to go home, clearly. Like, and if I was in Jimmy's shoes, like, I understand him, but it's like, it's not the right call in my eyes. I think that's a really fair point. I mean, I would probably do the same, honestly. I Objectively, I would probably try to commit him for 30 days, see if his condition improves. I mean, what do we really know about Chuck's condition here? It, this, this, to me, seems like it's all in his head. Yeah, this is uh, the first time that they address it directly, and it heavily implies that this is in his head, for sure. But there's still that ambiguity. They don't directly uh, state it. People who are close to him, such as Kim and Howard, have this impression that he doesn't suffer from a mental condition. Howard especially is stating that it is just physical, whereas Kim is a bit on the fence, where it could be something more. But it shows that people who know him and who are close to him still think that he's, he's not crazy, as he says. He defends himself in stating that it's just a condition and not a situation. He clearly thinks he's of sound mind. And you sort of see it to a degree, right? He starts rambling on a little. Yeah. Whether it's due to his familiarity with the law, sort of like a comfort thing, but he resorts back to it, right? When almost threatened by the doctor at the thought of psychiatric help, he resorts back to law with the idea of, okay, they can't take me away due to this subsection, this and that. And the doctor can clearly see that he is very intelligent man she mm -hmm. says so himself but we still see that he suffers from something he has all those symptoms that he lists out vertigo dizziness um and you can sort of see in the uh pov of himself right with the lights and blaring it's just uh, this distorted effect you can see it clearly does affect him and you have this man who's crippled by this illness on one hand and you have this brilliant man who's capable of critical thinking beyond almost any other character on the it's show almost kind of like dr jekyll and mr hyde oh yeah. for sure you have two faces here like or two faces a batman yeah. villain yeah. or just yeah. um contrasting characters within the same person yeah not quite personas but just opposites of the same character that's yeah, that's definitely very well said you can't do that. All of this needs to no, stay no, on. No, no electricity. You understand? Sir, I need you to get down from there. What the hell kind of torture chamber you run in here? He, he's allergic to electricity. You heard right? the doc. Get down no, now. All these lights and machines, you might as well throw them into a Come microwave. Come on, down no, now. don't touch me. Okay, so tell me about the electricity. Yeah, look, I know how it sounds. It's real. Hey, buddy. Hey, I'm right here. Hey, Chuck. Excuse me. The police kicked in my door. No warrant, no cause. I wasn't incoherent. They just weren't listening. They tasered me, Jimmy. Can you tell me a little more about your situation? It's not a situation, it's a condition. Electromagnetic hypersensitivity. Your brother called it an allergy to electricity. Well, it's an oversimplification, but it's essentially correct. 
electronic devices create their own electromagnetic fields. The closer I am to such devices, the worse my symptoms. Two years. That's a, that's a long time to live with discomfort. Oh, there it is. You think I'm crazy? I never said that. No, you didn't, because you're very polite. But you think it. Anyone who's spent more than a few minutes with me knows that this isn't some kind of delusion. You've known me for the better part of a decade. Have you ever seen me exhibit any sign, any sign whatsoever of mental illness? Section 43, 1, 11, part E3. The proposed commitment is consistent with the treatment needs of the client and with the least drastic means principle. If you testify in a custodial hearing, he can get the help he needs. That's in your power. To be committed involuntarily, he has to be a danger to himself or others. And he is. Coleman lanterns indoors, a camp stove. He could burn his house down or the entire neighborhood. And then you're looking at a commitment of 10 to 20 years. What if, what if he just hurts himself in a household accident? How does he call for help? You have the power to help your brother, truly help him. You're a real peach, Howard. Of course you don't want Chuck committed. No, I don't. Why would I? Because if Chuck were committed, then I become his legal guardian and I cash him out of HHM. I just want to see that son of a bitch sweat. It's so obvious what he's afraid of. Taking my brother home. As we go into the fourth scene, this scene begins with Jimmy helping Chuck ease back into his house. Jimmy, right away, challenges Chuck with the idea of him falling back to slipping Jimmy from the billboard uh, publicity stunt. Jimmy thinks this could be a reason he ended up in the hospital, but Chuck insists it was from him going outside to retrieve the newspaper that triggered his condition. This is kind of uh, an important conversation here we'll talk about in our post-discussion, but Jimmy and Chuck discuss the legalities of the billboard, and Jimmy tells his brother, you know, he's seen an uptick in business for elder law, wills, trusts, scams that older people have to deal with. Chuck seems to be okay with this idea of Jimmy representing the elderly, and he swears that the billboard was a one-time thing and that he'll play by the rules. Again, slipping Jimmy is done, dead and buried in Cicero. Chuck says, okay, we'll see as he removes the space blanket to go and make some coffee. Jimmy, now back at his, in his office, is studying an old tape of the popular TV show Matlock, starring Andy Griffith as the title character, who is a prominent lawyer in the series. Jimmy is studying the look and clothing of Andy's character, noting the suit color and size, and we'll see why in a moment, which is another really good uh, part of the episode. So we get some great quirky, upbeat music in the background, kind of symphonic, as we transition to an old folks' home. The song is The Third Man, the uh, Harry Lime theme by the Malcolm Lockyer Orchestra. I love the shots of the seniors struggling to open up the containers of jello pudding. And underneath one of the containers, we see an awesome graphic of a cartoon Jimmy, Need a Will, Call McGill, for advertising. Uh, Jimmy makes a casual entrance in his Matlock attire as he socializes with each of the seniors who are playing different board games, Monopoly we see at one point, and the music really adds to the mood of the scene 
as it comes to a close. You know, this is all an attempt to put himself out there. Brand messaging, you know, he's advertising his face and image for the senior citizens of Albuquerque. I think he kind of listens to Kim's advice, honestly, here, you know. For sure. Um, is Jimmy is Jimmy doing a good thing here with, the, with this kind of advertising? Yeah, like, he's a master of it. Like, this is far more legitimate in nature, far less great. Uh, but he's put all his previous experience to use. He knows how to attract people. His charisma and just, he knows what gets people's attention, right? When it comes to the specific scenario with the older people, having that free jello with his face at the bottom, and bingo and stuff, just, yeah, this is all stuff that caters towards his audience, right? And is more likely to get him the attention that he wants. Jimmy's conversation with Chuck that we had just heard, it's one of many we get throughout the first few seasons of the show. Very similar tone and dialogue between the two, with one insisting that he'll resort to change and the other refusing to believe that. What do you make of this particular moment in the episode, Alex? I mean, Jimmy, again, is insisting that he'll change is slipping Jimmy ways. Is there, are we reading too much into saying there's a correlation between Jimmy's antics with the law and make and Chuck feeling shitty or going into a bit of a psychosis? Right. Uh, correlation or causation. That is sort of the question, right? Uh, Chuck is explicitly states that like, no, it was the fact that I went outside to get the paper that causes it. But the doctor in the previous scene, this ties into it quite nicely. She states the fact that this may be a manifestation of something deeper. So this episode is incredibly important for the fact that it poses the theory of, and Jimmy blatantly says it here, that Chuck is getting worse because, in part, due to slipping Jimmy's type behavior. Whenever Jimmy acts inappropriate in the eyes of Chuck, Whenever he acts fraudulently, whenever he scams people or such, whenever he makes bad of his name, Chuck seems to get worse. And it's seen to a bit here, but it's not confirmed one way or another. It never says that. And with this scene further, uh, it's maybe reading a little bit too deep into it. I'm not quite sure, but you guys will have to let me know. There's some brilliant lighting in this room. Uh, you had some natural light and are you I, talking about inside Chuck's house inside Chuck's house there was the natural light I swear every time Jimmy would try to justify something that he's not slip, going back into slipping Jimmy and justifying the elder law he had half his face visible and half his face shadowed but whenever he talked about the future prospects uh, and his intents his face was fully lighted and uh, perhaps I'm reading too much into it, but Chuck always seemed to have slightly negative reaction with the shadow and light face and more positive one, such as finally taking off the blanket at the end when Jimmy's face was fully uh, shown. That's a very good observation, Alex. And, and b believe me, that I don't think that's reading too much into it because all of these shows, they have a lighting director. They have people in charge of how they want the look of the shot, you know, the lighting of the shot. Chuck's house throughout most of the series is a very dark home. We get a little bit of sunlight coming in from side part of his house where his office is and probably a little bit of light coming from upstairs. And other than that, it's in total darkness. So there, there's, it's very interesting to note that. Yeah, it definitely 
hints that it may be intentional. Uh, it's only a theory of uh, mine, but I think there's some merit to it personally. And any other thoughts about this scene? Not, not nothing really off the top of my head. I, I like Jimmy's attempt to try and attract some more business. I think, like I said, the music really plays into it well at the old folks' home. That we'll see a few times. You know, Alex had mentioned bingo. That'll be coming up later on the show. Um, it's all attempt to build client base. And, and Kim says, you know, Jimmy, you might be really good at doing elder law because you have a good way with people. So Yeah, no, I really like how he sort of embraces that a little. And I sort of like the precedent of that we've seen in the previous episode. He copies uh, Howard, right? Seeing him on television and knowing him in person copies the colors perfectly and he does so in this episode again yep. but for a more positive reason right yep. yeah and there you go hey you're home all right everything's gonna be all right you want to talk about this there's nothing to talk about you took the paper you saw this you got sick what's your point chuck i think you got sick because you saw this story. Whenever you think I've done something wrong, something questionable, you get worse. I didn't get sick because I read about you in the paper. I got sick because I went out of my house to retrieve the paper. You think this is the return of Slippin' Jimmy, but it's not. All right. But you think the billboard thing was unethical. I'm, I'm kind of starting to specialize. In elder law. Elder law. Yeah, the things the elderly have to deal with. I mean, you know, relatives coming after their savings, telemarketers, reverse mortgage scams. I mean, getting old sucks. Seniors need someone on their side, so you're looking at them. Well, it sounds promising. But it has nothing to do with my condition, all right? From here on out, I'm going to play by the rules. As any lawyer should. Exactly. Look, there are clients out there who need me, and I'm going to give them the best representation I know how to provide. I'm on the up and up, okay? I will be good. Slippin' Jimmy, he's back in Cicero, dead and buried. Okay. We'll see. So, we go on to the fifth scene here, and it starts with the black of night as Jimmy pulls up rather jubilantly to the toll booth Mike is working in. He rather annoyingly uh, says to Mike uh, different exclamations like, uh, hey, there he is, John, uh, man in the booth, John Wilkes Booth, Booth uh, Tarkington. They uh, continue their conversation with some light banter back and forth, but... Um, you're, reading the, you're reading the complete book of parking validation? Right. Uh, no, it's actually quite simple. Yeah. <laughs> Most people get it on the first try. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know I have the requisite stickers. While still my beating heart. Like, just some of their conversations are always comedic gold, in my opinion. But uh, Jimmy goes on to state that he's now doing elder law. Need a will? Call McGill. Give me a call if, uh, if, um, y if you happen to know any elders. <laughs> 10 out of 10 recovery, I must say. Yeah. Uh, but now we have a shot of time passing with the night turning to early morning as Mike remains in the middle of the frame, uh, his toll booth being the primary source of light. We start to follow Mike as his co-worker takes over his shift. And as it pans to Mike uh, eating in a diner alone, it starts to zoom in 
as he sort of tiredly makes a decision to himself. Uh, it pans over again to another frame of an unknown lady getting into her vehicle as Mike watches from inside his own, which is parked. She pulls away, and as she does so, she comes to a halt as she exchanges glances with Mike. They sort of look at each other for a bit. It's quite clear that they know each other, yet she decides to take off. And we don't know the relation between them at this point. No, but uh, we continue to follow Mike as he comes home, finally setting in, settling in and watching te television when there's a knock on his door. He opens it, revealing several police officers in his front yard, and he exchanges remarks with the lead officer. Long way from home, you and me both. That's in Cecilia. Hey, there he is, the man in the booth, John Wilkes Booth, Booth Tarkington. What you reading there? A complete annotated book of rules for parking validation? No. The rules for parking validation are actually pretty simple. Most people get it on the first try. Well, you'll be pleased to know I have the requisite stickers. Well, be still my heart. And you can have this as well. I'm doing elder law now. Need a will? Call McGill, so. Give me a call if you, uh, uh, if uh, you happen to know any elders. Good night. Couldn't have a bad one if I tried. from home, are you? You and me both. That was really well put, Alex. It's a short and simple final scene of this episode. I found it really interesting. This is the first time it took almost five full episodes in the series to do this, but now the camera and the action is following someone else other than Jimmy. We're following Mike Ermintrout for the first time. He's not just this guy who works in a parking booth. There's more layers to him. Um, what, what does this set up for Mike? Uh, it doesn't reveal much. He seems to have been a sticky situation, or at least it shows so, uh, perhaps due to the fact that he was near this lady. We're not quite sure. But uh, it, I find it also super interesting that we're finally following another character, as you said. And for me, one of the greatest strengths of Better Call Saul is its characters. It has a great cast and a variety of interesting characters. As we see further along in the series, we uh, some interesting characters such as Nacho, Kim, Chuck, and all these other people. We start to learn a little bit more about them. And so I'm always glad of the opportunity. I think that's a really good point by Alex. And I know for me, one of the fascinations and the fact that Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad are related to each other with Better Call Saul being the prequel. It's one of those things where it's like you can use your imagination and think, okay, at this given moment... Um, Jimmy McGill is up to something, and Mike Ermintrout is, is up to something, and Nacho Varga has his own life, and Kim, and then, you know, and as these shows, or as these, uh, rather, these character, uh, these... Um, Their worlds collide, right? The worlds collide, basically, is what I'm trying to say. Um, and, it, you know, it's very interesting. It's like you could use the imagination later on, hey, what might Walter White be up to in this given world? Because it's all the same cinematic universe, you know, just... 
years before. So I, I think that's really interesting that they finally were able to put this in. It, of course, this is another episode where, yes, now we're going to be wanting to know what happens in the beginning of the sixth episode. What's going to happen with Mike? It's going to become very important. Um, nothing gets forgotten that way. It's interesting no. that um, Mike, I believe that uh, he's the diner that he's in. I think that's Loyola's again. I think that's the same yes. diner that we see in Breaking Bad quite and, often. And we will see it repeatedly again in this show for we, too. As we've talked about on the podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess, you know, as for the rest of this episode, do you have a, a standout moment, Alex? And in terms of our character development, does Jimmy, I guess we see a bit of a, some exponential growth into Elder Law? What, what, what do you think? I think it's a positive light for Jimmy. It's one of his main strengths is uh, interacting with characters and he does really good with elders like as just as Kim said he has a great heart as we see throughout the show and it's puts a good use when it's done in elder law he's helping people in a legitimate and well rewarded manner like I mean he's getting paid far more than he was when he was working in just the courts alone public defender cases yes exactly so I found it was interesting how both the beginning and the end of this episode, I didn't pick up, I didn't think about stuff like this the first time watching through. The episode both begins and ends with cops. Cops arriving at Chuck's house, cops arriving at Mike's house. People always getting in trouble, I suppose, in Albuquerque. But uh, I do think the this episode is extremely important and we will be referring back to it in future. But uh, especially when it comes to, in my opinion, Chuck and his condition, this episode explains and heavily implies on a lot of it. And it doesn't do so explicitly in the past or perhaps not as much in the future. We'll see. Oh, it's up to be remained. But there are themes of it has been in the series and will continue to be in the series. Anything else uh, that stands out for you? No, not really that I can think of. I, I think I said to Alex before we recorded today's episode, this is one of my favorite episodes in the first season. And probably going forward, it, it would definitely be up there, maybe even in my top ten. That The whole second scene of the episode with Jimmy meeting the different clients really stands out to me. It kind of is almost kind of like the public defender cases that he would have had in the county court but now this is the real world and now he's meeting all these interesting characters who left voicemails with him you know uh you can kind of make a correlation between jimmy does something rather you know like uh what's the adjective that i'm looking for you know it's it's not really sinister with the billboard but it's just kind of uh not morally right i'm not sure you know it's not morally right it's just kind of questionable questionable and then he kind of gets questionable results you know the the old woman might end up providing a good lead for him but you know in the case of the patent law and the man who wanted to secede from america well you know yeah no that's an interesting thought like the idea of karma like he you put in you put in what you get you know you get all yeah. what you've put in you know and, hard work as um, well yeah, with that billboard, like, he got some poor results. Um, but when he decided to uh, stick around with the old lady, he ended up bearing fruit as a result by doing something nice. Yeah, that definitely is a good thought. Um, 
I just had one more thing about Howard, actually, in this mm-hmm. episode. I couldn't help but feel uh, really bad for him looking back on it. Uh, the first time I watched this series, I had the impression, uh, same as Joe said in uh, previous episodes of our podcast, that Howard is quite arrogant, especially in his demeanor. Like, when talking about Hamlin, he got blue. He's just not very relatable, right? He's like a higher-up lawyer who's very pompous, I guess is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, in the scene, uh, in the third scene here, when he finally arrives at the hospital, he is primarily concerned about Chuck, but he does come in a little bit like a white knight, or as some of the characters would say, uh, the tan knight coming in from, just from the tanning booth. But uh, he does bring up the fact that he made sure that the DA would not sign off on any... Um, uh, paperwork any, yeah any paperwork for to Chuck commit to be uh, yeah. committed right but uh, Jimmy only thinks that that's done for the fact that he can't get his share of and Chuck, meaning Chuck can't get his share of HHM as a result and it's like maybe there's a slight truth to that but I mean Chuck is clear sorry Howard is clearly concerned about Chuck and I can't help but feel bad for him because I feel like Jimmy's just projecting on him a little bit. Oh, definitely. It's funny how Kim already is starting to do that as well, where Kim's kind of, I don't know if it's really that she's lying through her teeth, but when she's hanging out with Jimmy in the salon, she says to Howard on the cell phone that she doesn't know where Jimmy is, basically, that she's not with him at the moment. But, you know, Jimmy's giving her a pedicure for her feet, you know, so Kim's kind of lying to Howard there a little bit to it's not really to protect Jimmy he's Kim likes Jimmy you know so yeah uh, for sure and for me just my impressions of Howard have drastically changed upon watching it the second time as opposed to watching the first time I really related more with Jimmy the first time I watched it but watching it again I just I can't help but feel like Howard is the one getting all the aggression from Jimmy like Howard's not doing anything to aggravate him. Not intentionally so, anyways. Not necessarily, no. No, that's that's a good point, Alex. All right, well, for the fifth episode of The Truth is How You Look at It, I was really happy to have this discussion this fine afternoon. This was Alpine Shepherd Boy recording in Winnipeg, Manitoba. You can check out our podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and more. Trying to put it up on YouTube as well, folks. You guys have a great afternoon and stay healthy and stay safe, guys. Yeah, I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. Take care, guys, and we'll talk to you all soon. Bye. Once again, a big thank you for tuning into our podcast. Our show's theme is The House, recorded by Adrian Berenger, and music featured in tonight's show was Dawn by Enrico De Lucia, Toddling Along by Judson Lee, Awkward Situation 1 and 2 by Sean Fisher, Happy Camper by Judson Lee, Excavate by Marshall Usinger, The Choice by Emmanuel Dentoni, and Fusion Ambient Soul by Camille Guschinski. Better Call Saul Season 6 is set to air this year, and Breaking Bad is a must-watch if you haven't seen these television series before. Until next week, on tap is Episode 6, 5 We'll catch y'all on the flip side. The Truth is How You Look at It is a Bernanke and Krauss production.